This is an ABC podcast. I don't know about you, I'm, I'm, I'm weirdly fond of airline food. I, I see the, the flight attendant struggling uphill behind that cart and I get a, I get a thrill. I'm wondering what's going to come out of that thing. Will it delight me? Will it disappoint me? <laughs> Snacks, drinks, everything with uh, substantial food miles that needs to be said every day. Travellers are fed thousands of meals and in the air at sea. Here's a number for you. 30,000 meals are dished out daily on the world's largest cruise ship. That's one boat, 30,000 meals. Think about that. <laughs> the options available to us, there's been such an evolution in what is served up. Uh, flying or shipping or even training over the years. It's uh, been a movable feast, shall we say. Uh, to talk about these things, Besha Riddell, uh, a woman who's eaten her way around the globe. She is the chief dining critic at The Age, Good Food Australia and Good Weekend magazine. Besha, hello. Hi there. What do you think of an in-flight meal? Well, it depends on a lot of things. What is that? <laughs> yes, depends a lot on airline, um, on class of travel, on all of those things. But I do think that it's gotten a lot better since, you know, I, I've been traveling from Australia to America, coming from a transcontinental family since I was born, basically. And God, those things that we used to get served in the 80s and 90s, I remember something I didn't know what it was. And I said, I think this is bristle pocket surprise. <laughs> so now it's a lot better, but it can still be kind of dismal at times. The, the thing that prompted this was a, a strange decision on the part of Qantas, quickly reversed, of taking away vegetarian offerings on, on short haul routes. I mean, that's... Uh, it's such a denial of people, people's preferences that seemed amazingly discordant. Everything about the timing was so strange, uh, not least of which that, you know, Qantas has been in a bit of hot water recently and you would think they would want positive press, not negative. And also people who are not vegetarian are pretty happy to eat like a spinach and feta mm. roll, you know. Um, I One of my biggest tips for dining on airplanes is usually the pasta is the safest bet, which is usually the vegetarian option. So I don't know. I mean, they probably could have taken away the meat option and people might not have noticed. So yeah, it was very strange and they quickly changed their minds, which was probably the right thing to do. The other the other sort of trend in, in airline catering has been to make it a, a user pays system. But Vesha, that, that takes us back to the very origins of the idea of the in-flight meal. It does. Yeah. Those little boxes that you sometimes pay for, especially on the budget airlines, you know, in some ways pretty close to the original meal that was served on a flight in 1919, which was a little lunchbox of, you know, cold chicken or a, sa a sandwich. Although, you know, it says that it was 9.50 at the time, which sounds... Is that kind pounds? Of, yeah, I don't know, but um, but at the same time, anybody who was really taking a flight in 1919 yes. was a very wealthy person. It was not something that regular people really did until, uh, I mean, especially from the US to Europe, it, you really took a a ship um, until probably the late 60s. My mother went to France as a teenager and went in 1967 and went 
one way on a ship, which is how everybody really did it. And she said that within a couple of months when she returned, she, it had switched so much culturally that people then were taking planes. It's such an interesting thing, too, because in those, I mean, for the early planes, the thing that they were grappling with in people's memory and experience was dining cars on trains, was the the extraordinary food that could be offered on a on a on a boat that's got full kitchens and you know every every restaurant facility that was quite a thing for air travel to to try and match absolutely and in the 50s they really did try to match that the 50s and early 60s again this was before it was the mode of travel that regular people would probably take but you know you can look at these historical photos of planes in the 50s and 60s and they look like some kind of amazing cocktail bar from that era you know there's like plush seating and you know they've got the the silver service and all of that stuff i i mean it's interesting because it, I've always wondered, you read these menus that look so lavish from the 50s and 60s, but I wonder what the food was really like. Was it really that good or was it just kind of luxury for the sake of luxury that didn't actually translate? I found that to be true. You know, in Los Angeles, there's a lot of restaurants that still exist from that era and still serve the same food that you would get. And they're beautiful, but the food's pretty bad. <laughs> Yes, okay. <laughs> it's fun, but the food's pretty bad. So I wonder, I wonder if all that lavishness of the 50s and 60s on planes really was great or if it was just to make the pampered rich people on the flights feel like they were getting the money's worth. Well, justify the amount of money that it, that it costs. I mean, that's, that's the funny thing too. I mean, you're... Yeah. Getting on a plane is a fairly utilitarian construct. You know, I'm, I'm doing this because I want to get there. The, the stuff that's fed to me en route is, well, yeah, it's nice, but it's kind of not actually fundamental to the purpose of, of what's going on. No, but I think a lot of people do feel the way that you do. And I don't know if it's just a kind of evolutionary thing where it's like, oh, free food. <laughs> <laughs> But I do yes. think it's one of the treats of travel is the idea that you're going to get a snack, that there's going to be something fun maybe about it. You know, I eat for a living. And so often when I get on planes, I have eaten plenty and really shouldn't be eating anymore. But I have a really hard time turning down that free meal. <laughs> now, we mentioned boats and, and that sort of glorious sort of Titanic era moment. of well, That's probably an unfortunate example to yeah. give, but <laughs> that thing of, of splendor afloat. Is that a thing that was sustained, uh, like in the cruise business? I mean, I imagine cruises are, are, are pretty good on the food, the food it, service as well. It depends completely on so many things. It's really interesting because, as I mentioned, you know, people used to take boats across the uh, Atlantic and Pacific when they were just traveling. And when that stopped, that's really when the modern cruise era was born, which means getting on a boat for the sake of getting on a boat, not mm -hmm. because you're trying to get somewhere. Well, that, that must, that must yeah. raise the stakes on the catering, you'd think. It does. But one of the really fascinating things about cruise ships is that it mimics society in this very interesting way in that it tries to give each kind of echelon of person, meaning how much they've paid for their ticket, a sense that they are getting luxury without really allowing them to see what luxury is available to the next step up, you know? So uh -huh. for people who have paid the lowest amount, to them, 
a lot of time luxury is an all-you-can-eat buffet that's open all day. And who cares what's on it? I mean, there's there's been some changes in recent years to kind of make those buffets a little more fancy. You know, there's cheese and charcuterie on those buffets and stuff now, but mainly it's chicken nuggets and pizza and and fairly lowbrow food that you can just get as much as you want all day, every day. And then there's the kind of second echelon, which will have restaurants that you could pay $25 extra or $50 extra to get in. And then there's the grand ballroom that you eat every night at and they have a formal night. And, you know, it's about you still get to dress up. And it's kind of the thing I think a lot of people love cruises for because after senior dance and at the occasional wedding, when do you really get to put on a ball gown? You know, <laughs> so a cruise gives you that option. But my experience, and I have some experience for purely research purposes, is that the food in those big grand dining rooms is pretty, you know, it's roast beef and mashed potatoes. It's it's not super high quality and it would be very hard to when you're trying to serve 30,000 of them, right? But there's also this very high echelon that has very fancy restaurants that you can't even get into unless you're in a certain class of suite. You wouldn't even know they exist. So it does mimic kind of society a little bit in that way. And the fact that they hide it from all of the people on the same boat is really interesting. It, it, see, it is exactly like the Titanic. <laughs> yes, it is. It absolutely is. As much as that much. <laughs> the kitchens on, on aeroplanes is sort of an interesting idea. I would have thought that, you know, stoves with gas jets flaring was the antithesis of a safe environment and an aircraft. How do they manage this? What was, what's the story of airplane kitchens? Well, there was, a, I think, a fairly proper kitchen first installed on a plane in 1936. And they've kind of changed a lot since then. There's not really a chef back there, <laughs> you know, putting <laughs> things away. No. Um, <laughs> it's, it's all done by hot boxes now. And it's a fascinating kind of scientific conundrum that companies have spent so much money on, usually not the airlines themselves, but secondary companies that, you know, provide the food to the airlines. And how do you get food that is going to be sitting in refrigeration for sometimes, you know, up to 10, 12 hours to still be tasty. And especially for the very, you know, for the first class type of meals, which come on China, you know, uh -huh. you get a salad, you get a cheese course, you get all of those things. And it, it's supposed to mimic a restaurant. It's and a big technical challenge, isn't it? It really is. Anytime that you're serving food that isn't coming straight from the kitchen onto the diner's plate, um, whether that be a meal kit or, you know, food for um, industrial, you know, school lunches, elderly facilities. It's it's really scientifically tricky because you have because of the food safety involved even before you get to the pleasure aspect of it. I mean, this is sort of a weird thing we're going to talk about here, but but airline food is even attempting to approximate some of the trends in, in other dining. There's even an example of paddock to plate in flight. Yeah. Uh, Singapore Airlines, they have aero farms <laughs> to grow <laughs> produce in flight um, and they're calling it farm to plate. If you can call a plastic box on an aeroplane a farm, I guess <laughs> that's, I mean, I'm all for it. Like, I think it's fun. And Singapore Airlines, in my experience, is one of the better airlines in terms of food. So I kind of trust them. But there's all kinds of uh, trends like that. One of the ones that I've seen that I really am all for that has come and gone with certain airlines. I mean, I think COVID has just disrupted everything to 
do with the airlines trying to get better and now they're just struggling to survive. But um, a couple of years ago, Delta Airlines in the US hired a really well-known wine writer to curate its wine selection so that, you know, especially if you're in business class, they're, they're realizing that certain levels of travelers are much more educated about food and drink than they used to be. And, you know, will maybe pick an airline over another one if they know that they can get something more than just plonk, you know? Yeah, well, I, I know that, I mean, Qantas has used celebrity chefs to, to, to you know, curate uh, their offerings, for example, that sort of personalization, somebody who knows with what degree of detail, but overseeing uh, the offering on, on aircraft that sort of feeds into our our, our star chef sort of culture. You know, Qantas has uh, Neil Perry and he's, his main contribution to Qantas, I think, is really with their lounges. The, the food served at the first class lounge um, in Sydney and Melbourne, it's like going to eat at a restaurant. I mean, it's it's pretty good. And then I think that that kind of star power, I, I think that they also use those chefs to, to curate some of their in-flight food, but it's more of a trickle down thing where you associate the chef's name with that airline and, and that gives them some credibility. All of which is just, it's, it's, I'm suddenly getting a, a, a picture in my mind of, and this is as, as a younger chap, uh, I used to travel a fair bit Melbourne between Melbourne and Canberra by by train, which means going to Yass, in fact, not to Canberra <laughs> for those with an eye for detail. But on that, there's not so much a restaurant car as this sort of weird buffet car where you could maybe get a, a cup of tea and a sausage roll and sit there at this bar swaying as the train races through outback New South Wales. It's sort of the idea of... Of, of combining food and, and gestures toward catering with, with moving through space. It's kind of a, a romantic and, and an exciting one. It's super romantic and exciting. And I think that all of us, unless you really have a job where travel is a daily grind, and lots of us do, but it's still a special thing for most people. And so anything that's added to that that's a little bit special i think you it's easy to romanticize it it's easy to want it to be not a drag and just a, a way to get yourself through the day but i just you know i love traveling on trains train travel is probably my favorite form mm. of travel and and i've never had that experience of the like fancy dining car on a train but it sounds to me just like absolute heaven like that that's the best possible thing to be on a train and have champagne it sounds just yeah best. i want that i think we all need that one day don't we <laughs> yes <laughs> that, that orient express experience exactly besha thank you so much uh, tra transports of delight Yes, thank you. Besha Riddell, uh, Chief Restaurant Critic for The Age and Good Weekend. And this is Blueprint on ABC RN. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.